It does occur to me listening to that introduction, thank you very much for that introduction, <laughs> that um, that's the story of my career, that I started off trying to be useful measuring things, which means that you might be employed, and once you've got your foot in the door, then you can start to get more interested about what you were trying to measure. So what I want to do uh, in this talk is to sort of follow up from um, some work I did actually six years ago now, um, which was to start thinking about the obstetric dilemma. And I, I wrote a couple of papers, one of them with some colleagues, um, trying to give a little more insight into the obstetric dilemma. And it got a bit of media interest, uh, unusually for my work. Someone wrote about it on the BBC and someone else, uh, a journalist, wrote about it. And one of the journalists said, but he has no data to support his uh, ideas. And I thought, oh. Uh, and I hadn't even thought about that. So that really spurred me to go and get some data to see if we could support the ideas. So this will be the first half of the talk is on the ideas and the second half on a recent analysis that actually hopefully gives some data to support the ideas. So uh, a lot of us have been interested recently in Washburn's obstetric dilemma. Like many things in anthropology, it was a great idea. It doesn't mean it's right, but it's good to think with. That's uh, a phrase anthropologists often like. Um, in 1960, Washburn wrote this um, article in Scientific American about tools and human evolution. And he suggested as one of the points in this article um, that the adaptation to bipedal locomotion decreased the size of the bony birth canal at the same time, which we don't think anymore, that tool use selected for larger brains. Now we know that those might have happened millions of years apart. Uh, and Washburn said, this obstetrical dilemma was solved by delivery of the fetus at a much earlier stage of development, but that then prompted discussion that maybe it wasn't always solved, and sometimes birth was unusually difficult because this, there was still a problem with some babies getting through uh, the pelvis. Now, this has led to a kind of a thinking about human birth as something about the species. Um, and I think it's been very interesting, and I don't think Washburn is wholly wrong, but I think there's two areas uh, that we can think about. One is whether what we have today is just a complete replica of what we had in the past. And the other bit which I'm more interested in is well, what about differences between individual women? Um, maybe it's not one obstetric dilemma for all women. Maybe there's a different obstetric dilemma for different women. And so I'm not one of the people who wants us to say there is no obstetric dilemma, but I think we can ask how much is there? Um, how consistent is it? And, and why is it there? So why is delivery so tight in individuals? And like much of my work, this whole interest came about by accident. I was compiling literature uh, uh, on body composition. And I was just looking through journals page by page. And in between two articles I was looking at was this one by Epstein. Uh, and it was about the idea that if we think of the baby's head as a sphere and the pelvis as a, a diameter, uh, he had this graph showing that um, a tiny increase in the diameter can allow quite a big, a bigger sphere to fit through. And I just thought, well, why is there an obstetric dilemma? And he'd been saying that in 1973, but no one had really responded um, to this idea. So it didn't make sense. You could get a much bigger baby's brain just by half a centimetre or one centimetre increase in the diameter of the pelvis. So I just started reading up a little bit more about that. So why can't the baby be smaller if we think about the brain of the baby? Well, this is a, a very helpful paper. This is the, uh, the likelihood of the child needing special educational needs in relation to uh, gestational age. And you can see that from 41 weeks backwards, the earlier you're born, the more likely the baby is to need special educational needs. So it looks as if babies need to complete 
time in gestation for uh, having uh, an optimal brain. Um, and so if the, if the brain is growing in fetal life, then um, you can't really shorten um, gestation that much. And we appear to be a like a primate that needs to have around 30% of adult brain size at birth to be a viable human. So maybe it's not that easy for babies to be smaller. Why can't the mother be bigger? Well, I'm going to leave this slide blank because I'm not sure that there are reasons why mothers can't be bigger. Mothers come in all sorts of different sizes around the world and we don't really see challenges uh, facing larger mothers compared to smaller mothers. And, and so there's no real obvious answer to this. Mothers, women can be uh, many different sizes. And there's also a lot of variability you'll see in pelvic size. But what we do know is that there is a burden of paternal morbidity and mortality. So amongst women who get pregnant, a proportion of them may have obstructed labor, a proportion of those may have a cesarean section. Um, oh, there are other reasons for having cesarean section as well. And then there's the kind of neglected burden of obstructed labor uh, where there's no actual treatment uh, and there are some very significant problems that emerge, such as stress, incontinence, and fistula. And these are very big problems, public health problems, but invisible to some extent uh, around lower and middle income countries. So clearly, birth isn't that easy uh, for a large uh, minority, or even a small majority, of women. So hopefully this fits into uh, a sort of an emerging field. Um, evolutionary medicine is going from strength to strength, but it did occur to some of us that public health was getting a bit left behind. People were talking a lot about evolutionary medicine um, and talking about diseases. Um, but my interest is in public health. And perhaps evolutionary theory could be particularly beneficial in public health because we're dealing with populations and we're dealing with the life course and we're dealing with the environments that we construct for ourselves. So birth might, might be very interesting to consider uh, within this broader framework. So, Taking a very long view, these are uh, some images produced by Jeremy De Silva, who was a co-author on this paper uh, that was published in 2012. Each um, outer diameter is the uh, a depiction of the dimensions of the maternal pelvis, and the, the closed circle is the size of the fetal brain. And you can see that there is no consistent obstetric dilemma through our primate evolutionary heritage. Uh, macaques have quite a tight fit. And then gorillas uh, and, um, sorry, uh, chimpanzees have a rather uh, looser fit. So in theory, delivery should be much easier for a chimpanzee. And then if we look at um, different uh, um, hominins, um, Australopithecus and so on, um, I'm not very good on what MH2 and Gona mean exactly, but they're specific skeletons from different um, uh, parts of the fossil record. You can see that they, it kind of waxes and wanes. There is no obstetric dilemma. It's something that can change o over time. If you look in a little more detail about our recent um, ancestral populations or, or side chains, then um, if you're above the line here, then that's the size of the birth canal relative to the volume of the neonatal head. So up here, birth is easier, and if you're below the line, birth is more difficult. And again, you can see that there's been some changes over time. So there's not one constant obstetric dilemma through hominin evolutionary history, um, and you can see where, where humans are. If we look at uh, skeletal data uh, from around uh, the world, so these are not living women, these are uh, skeletal collections, um, then the thing that really comes to mind is there's some variability, whether we're looking at the inlet anterior posterior dimension or the outlet or the transverse diameter, then there's quite a large coefficient of variation um, across these different populations. So again, there's 
women come in uh, different sizes and shapes and the pelvis can vary and there was a very nice paper out recently by Leah Betty uh, confirming this uh, and raising the question that you know maybe even delivery isn't actually uh, a single uh, physiological process around the world if the pelvis uh, varies in size and shape. Then we know that there have been secular trends in height and as you'll see height is something that's actually quite important uh, for the obstetric dilemma. So this is just data from um, Mediterranean populations. It's quite old data from Angel. Um, you can see a large decline in Mediterranean populations between 30,000 and 3,000 uh, BC, and then a slow recovery followed by a faster recovery. So that's what we've learned about the origins of agriculture. Height tended to go down in many regions and then recover. These are data from uh, modern uh, DHS surveys in sub-Saharan Africa. This is a lot of countries all pooled together. Um, the black boxes are income, and the uh, uh, line that looks like train tracks um, is uh, a, a fitted line to maternal height. And you can see that as income came down following the introduction of the structural adjustment policies, women's height appeared to decline in Africa as well. So secular trends in height are not something about our distant past. They can be going on upwards and downwards in modern populations as well. Why does height matter? Well, these are un unpublished data from my PhD student, former student, Megan Shirley. Uh, she measured around 70 South Asian women living in the UK. Um, sorry, the graphs aren't that easy to read, but on the x-axis in each case here is the tibia, and on the x-axis on here, in each case is height residual. So that's height regressed on the tibia, so it's, a, it's the, the component of variability of height that isn't explained by the tibia. And every y-axis is one of six um, pelvic dimensions. So all you need to see here is there's a positive slope in every case. So whether you have a longer lower leg or whether you have more height in areas that are not correlated with the lower leg, then women have, on average, larger pelvic dimensions. There's still some variability, but almost all of these correlations are significant. Now that's interesting because we tend to think that the tibia is the part of growth that is most responsive to ecological conditions during the life course. So you could say this side of the graph suggests that plasticity and growth correlates with dimensions of the pelvis. But we know that lots of height is uh, also genetic uh, or genetically determined. And so this side of the graph might be suggesting more that if you have genes for, for taller height, um, then also that equates to, on average, a larger pelvis. So that's been slightly artificial about dividing the two halves up, but the message is that if you grow, whether in the lower leg or in other components of height, then there is, on average, a payoff for the dimensions of the pelvis. And there's less data on what happened to the pelvis over uh, a long time period, but these are more data from Angel, and again showing that there was some kind of fall in the dimensions of the pelvis uh, between 9,000 BC and uh, 6,500 BC, and then some kind of recovery that's again uh, gone up uh, more recently, and there's some US data on the top right-hand corner. So not hugely convincing, but some indication that there has been downward and upward trends in the size of the pelvis as well. Okay, so how can the obstetric dilemma respond to these secular trends in maternal uh, skeletal dimensions? So obviously, from an evolutionary point of view, both the mother and the offspring benefit from a successful delivery. 
But if the mother is changing size, and if the baby cannot exit the mother unless it's matched to some extent to the size of the mother, then both parties <coughs> might change over time. But it's like a three-legged race. Because whatever plastic influences are acting on the baby are occurring one generation after any plastic influences acted on the mother. So this is leaving aside uh, any genetic factors. So this one generation lag uh, means that we're dealing with a, a very interesting coordination problem. How can we coordinate the growth of the baby uh, to the um, uh, skeletal dimensions of the, of the mother? Um, one of the things that uh, I think is very interesting here is that we know that birth weight is unusually poorly accounted for by genetic factors. Uh, so it looks like quite a plastic trait. Uh, there are those genes that do code for birth weight tend to have quite a small magnitude of effect, which uh, would re reduce the chance that just having a gene that coded for a large increment of birth weight would meet a pelvis that couldn't actually allow that baby to be delivered. So we might be having antagonistic trends. There might be uh, ecological factors that are harmful for maternal height and would be sending maternal height downwards. And yet you might also have other ecological factors that might be promoting fetal growth and making the baby bigger. And if those two trends were going in opposite directions, then you would predict that the obstetric dilemma would be getting worse, would be increasing in magnitude. So agriculture seems a, quite an interesting area to think around um, uh, this kind of uh, issue. So what we do know is that most populations, with few exceptions, appear to have lost height around the origins of agriculture. There's some variability in that. Some populations have had a small dip and some have had uh, a long and sometimes sustained dip. Um, we can somewhat see in the fossil record or skeletal record and also infer from our correlations in modern populations that if height went down, the pelvis probably got smaller as well. Uh, for example, uh, populations in India, which are some of the shortest uh, worldwide today, also have uh, fairly small pelvic dimensions as well. So we can find populations that fit that pattern. But something else that happened around agriculture was a shift from hunting and uh, uh, gathering to uh, consumption of uh, grain foods. And we know that they may have um, implications for dietary glycemic loads. So you might be changing, increasing the carbohydrate uh, content of the diet, and I know Stan has uh, written about carbohydrate transitions uh, in human evolution. And both for that reason and for other reasons, there may have been changes in uh, fetal size, as, uh, as I'll come back to in a moment. So agriculture may have affected both the mother and the baby in these antagonistic ways. We know that there was a boom in infectious diseases around the time that populations adopted agriculture and became sedentary. Um, if you were doing public health now, you would say that animal feces are a major factor associated with child stunting in developing countries. And of course, if girls get stunted, they're not going to grow and they're not going to have such large pelvic dimensions. So the increase in population density of humans and the increase in uh, animal uh, husbandry and associated um, infectious disease burdens, either diseases jumping or, or, or so on, um, could have had implications um, for um, maternal growth, but it could also have had implications for the baby, because baby's body fat is one way of developing immune defense. It's body fat that funds the immune system. Here's some data from a modern study looking at glycemic index diet of the mother during pregnancy and size of the baby. It's quite a small study, 
Um, I wish there was more data on this kind of topic, but there's 32 on the low GI diet and 30 on the high GI diet. And what you can see is that mothers consuming a high GI diet have uh, roughly 240 grams heavier birth weight of the baby. Borderline significant, but it's, it's a small study. But the implication is that if you're eating a, a, a higher carbohydrate diet, that may have implications for the size of the baby. So what happens if you bring together smaller mothers and larger offspring? Well, this is uh, um, one of the earlier studies that looked at this. This is data from Guatemala. We've got maternal height on the front x-axis, and we've got core files of the fetal head girth up the right-hand side. And it's very easy to see that it's the baby with the big head uh, being delivered by the short mother that has the highest risk of needing a cesarean delivery. So that gives some support to the notion that there is this clash between the size of the baby and the size of the mother um, that has implications for um, the obstetric dilemma. And I don't think any obstetrician would find this surprising. It's just, uh, it helps bring, a, bring light uh, onto an evolutionary perspective on this. Can we actually see any difference between um, mortality rates of early farmers and late uh, uh, foragers? So these were data compiled by uh, Jay Stock, who was obviously an expert in this particular aspect of the fossil record, the Holocene foragers. And um, to the extent that he could find data, he saw a very weak signal of perinatal mortality amongst uh, a number of hunter-gatherer populations and much higher rates of perinatal mortality amongst early agricultural populations. Now, these are not strong data because maybe farmers were burying their babies in different ways, so we have to think about issues of whether there was equality of uh, availability of the skeletal data. Um, but that's what there is, and that's what it shows, so at least it doesn't go against the hypothesis. So, what can we do to get more insight into this? We can't go back to the origins of agriculture, but maybe we might learn more from studying uh, modern women and then we could turn it around. Maybe we can use these insights from the past to understand more about what's happening in contemporary women. So, as I said earlier, secular trends in body size and shape are ongoing upwards and downwards. Height can be increasing, but height can also be decreasing. A major strength of contemporary data is we have data on individual childbirths. We can actually match individual babies and individual mothers. And as you'll see, we can do it with absolutely huge sample sizes, which means that it's good for statistics. Having said that, we're not really seeing a birth, we're seeing statistics on outcomes. So the birth itself is still invisible to some extent. Um, we can control for various confounders, which is very helpful, because with this kind of scenario, lots of different things might be interacting. It's not an experimental approach, it's an observational approach, but we can try and hold constant for some factors that might be quite important. And because we can connect some of the modern data with our understanding of physiology, we might learn more about some of the metabolic processes to get the mechanisms by which this might be occurring, or these patterns might be occurring. So what can we see in the modern world? So obstructed labor, which is really is the definition of where the baby gets stuck during delivery, does still account for a proportion of maternal mortality. And of course, obstetric labor, sorry, the obstetric dilemma isn't just about obstructed labor. This is just one of the, the closest fits between the two concepts. 
Um, but you can see that a proportion of births in Africa, Asia, and Latin America still cause maternal mortality uh, through um, obstructive labor. So it's, it's an ongoing public health issue. The burden of morta morbidity is much greater. Uh, so this is lo only looking at the worst case scenario. If we think about cesarean delivery, and again, it's important to remember that cesareans are not just uh, applied for obstructed labor. They're a solution to various challenges during delivery, but they have a correlation with obstructed labor. So rates are rising globally. In 1991, in 15 births worldwide was by a cesarean. In 2014, it's one in five, 20%. It's the most common surgical procedure worldwide, and it's almost become normal, except it's medical. So that is a, a good index of the medicalization of childbirth, to think that one in every five babies arrives uh, through a cesarean delivery. In 2012, which is now some time ago, over 20 million uh, cesarean sections were performed. So it's a huge uh, magnitude of uh, a, a problem. There's substantial variability by country, and these data are not perfect because we probably are under-collecting data in, in some regions, but I don't think anyone would dispute the pattern that there are some global regions with very high rates, in particular South America, and some regions with very low rates, Sub-Saharan Africa, India, and, and uh, South uh, Asia, and so on, but quite high rates in China. Why is there so much variability? Well, where you have very low rates, such as below 3% in Burkina Faso and Ethiopia, a large contributing factor is likely to be inadequate provision of medical services. So it's not that there's no need for cesareans in these populations, but the facilities are not really available. When you have very high rates, such as above 45% in Mexico or the Dominican Republic, in large part, it may reflect defensive medicine, uh, introduction of private insurance, doctors not wanting to be sued, and high socioeconomic status. So there's no doubt that there's all sorts of different factors that are associated with variable um, rates of cesarean section. Uh, the Lancet ran a series uh, in the autumn, which very much uh, was focusing on the idea that there's too much. Stemming the global cesarean section epidemic, and this was one of the papers, interventions to reduce unnecessary cesarean sections in healthy women and babies. And I don't want to argue against this series at all. I'm not arguing there, aren't, there, there, are, there are not too many. There are too many. But we do have a letter under submission to the Lancet asking if there are reasons why uh, secular trends uh, in body size and shape might be one of the factors contributing to variable rates. Hasn't been rejected yet. <laughs> So there are a balance of benefits and risks to having a cesarean section. And uh, obviously the benefit is that the baby might get uh, delivered in, uh, and solve some problems of complicated deliveries. But there are some costs to the mother. There's an increased risk of birth complications. There's an increased risk to the mother of mortality. And there's also potential adverse long-term effects on maternal health. So cesareans don't come without potential costs to the mother. And they also don't come without potential costs to the child. So there are also hormonal exposures during childbirth, because there's no natural release of hormones down the umbilical cord. There's an altered transfer of the maternal microbiome. That's a contentious topic at the moment. How much does that matter? But we do know that cesarean deliveries are associated with elevated risks of metabolic and immune diseases later in childhood. Again, that's another contentious topic. Uh, so we need more work on that. But I think 
there's general agreement that the cesarean section is not neutral for the child, just as it isn't for the mother. So what is the optimal rate for a cesarean section? So in 2007, Bertrand and colleagues suggested that if you have rates in a population above 10%, 1 in 10 deliveries, there's no additional benefit to the mother and the baby. And in fact, if you have rates above 15%, you actually start to see mortality starting to rise again. So not only is it not beneficial, it could be harmful. In 2009, the WHO endorsed that view and said they suggested that rates should be between 10 and 15%, and cesarean delivery should only be used when the health of the mother or the newborn is actually at risk. But then in 2015, Molina and colleagues suggested that up to, rates of up to 90% might still reduce maternal or child mortality. So there's different opinions coming out, um, and what's interesting is that most of these are still trying to put forward a one-size-fits-all perspective that we know what it should be. Either it should be 10% or it should be between 10 and 15%. No one really is discussing here that maybe populations need different rates. Maybe some of the variability that was in those very uh, patterned global pictures might actually be there for biological reasons rather than just social or economic reasons. So. The reason um, I, I got particularly interested in this is because a lot of my work is in the field of infant nutrition and its implications for um, health later in the life course. And what we're all talking about now is the double burden of malnutrition, the dual burden. And we're very focused on this now because there's more and more information suggesting that we can't any longer separate out overweight and obesity on one side and undernutrition on the other side for, for multiple reasons. These problems occur in the same countries, they occur in the same communities, they occur in the same families, but what we're realizing now is they often occur in the same people. Someone who was <coughs> low birth weight and stunted in early life and then becomes overweight later in the life course actually is themselves expressing the double burden of malnutrition. And as the global obesity epidemic rolls out and affects increasingly people in lower middle income countries, a large proportion of those people either were stunted by the definition of being below two Z scores for, uh, minus two Z scores per, per weight for age, uh, height for age. But they can also have been stunted if they didn't reach that cutoff. So we're dealing with very large numbers of uh, women who showed poor linear growth in early life and now have excess weight in later life. And therefore the dual burden of malnutrition is gonna become a very important issue uh, in relation not just to metabolic health, but potentially also for childbirth. So we have high rates of child undernutrition persisting alongside this emerging epidemic of overweight and obesity. Now what's interesting is that most attention to the double burden of malnutrition is focused on what are called non-communicable diseases or chronic diseases. So what people have looked at is heart disease, hypertension, stroke and diabetes. And you can put gestational diabetes as part of that picture. But when people think about the double burden and health, they generally think what they call metabolic health and NCDs. We're not thinking of childbirth at all. So this is perspective is partly extending our understanding of what the dual burden might mean for global health with a particular focus on women. So let's go back to this idea that we could be uh, looking at the obstetric dilemma as the consequence of antagonistic signals, those that affect the growth of the pelvis of the mother during her development and those that affect the growth of the baby 
during its own uh, gestation. So the dual burden maps very easily onto that. Stunting of the woman during her development could give rise to smaller pelvic dimensions. And then overweight during pregnancy could affect the maternal fuel supply to the fetus, and that could result in a larger baby. And then you would bring these two things together, and clearly delivery is not going to be so easy. So what can we see uh, around the world? So uh, there was this amazing paper published in 2016 called A, a Century of Trends in Adult Height. And, and this graph shows, on a global map, the trend in height between 1896 and 1996. And these pale countries show minimal change in height, sort of between two and four centimeters of height over a century. These countries are missed out on the secular trend that's occurred in, in Europe uh, and uh, some areas of, of South America more recently. So there are populations who are still uh, quite short. Um, we know that maternal height in any population matters for the risk of caesarean delivery. So whether we're dealing in Sweden where average height is quite tall and you see this doubling of risk for being uh, 155 to 164 centimetres compared to our reference group of 174 centimetres and then even greater if you're below 155 centimetres. The same pattern if we go to Malawi where the reference group is the same as the middle for Sweden you see now an increased risk of cesarean section in the mothers who are shorter than 155 centimetres. What about BMI? So I was wanting to find a, a global map of the increase in obesity, but I didn't manage to track one down. This is the increase in average BMI. It's a much shorter time period than the height graph. It's just under 40 years, not a century. But you can see that all of the map has gone quite a bit more orange. And that's true for sub-Saharan Africa and India. It's not still average BMI levels aren't particularly high, but we have to be careful with India because um, the harmful effects of higher BMI emerge at much lower BMI thresholds in South Asian populations. So the fact that the map has gone darker, that's the average BMI. There's obviously increases in overweight and obese women um, associated with those patterns. So. Join those two maps together, we've got women not really getting taller, but they are getting heavier over time. Um, this is just a, a, a review of studies showing that overweight and obesity are correlated or, or increase the risk in many different populations with a number of important risk factors for childbirth complications. So these are the odds ratios for gestation and diabetes. Those are the odds ratios for microsomia. And on the right-hand side, the odds ratios for cesarean delivery. And it's kind of the same everywhere. Um, heavier mothers have increased uh, odds of all of these uh, outcomes. Now, obviously, this is looking at the upper end of the scale. Just macrosomic babies are really heavy babies uh, and have high levels of body fat. Uh, and gestational diabetes is at the right-hand side of uh, poor control of uh, blood sugar levels. But if you can see these things going on, it's not... Uh, disease, no disease, we're dealing with a continuum. So uh, these are merely uh, the most visible part of what higher levels of maternal body weight could be doing to maternal metabolic control during pregnancy, the weight of the baby at delivery, and the odds ratio of having uh, complications during childbirth. So we can make some predictions that compared to a kind of hypothetical reference woman who's had normal growth and therefore developed a good-sized pelvis, and has normal blood sugar control, 
during pregnancy and therefore gestates a normal sized baby. The dual burden of malnutrition is introducing all sorts of problems. The stunting of the woman in early life could be reducing the dimensions of the pelvis. Obesity or overweight uh, during pregnancy could increase the size of the baby. And we know that short stature is an independent risk factor for gestational diabetes, probably because it's a marker of poorer organ development in early life. Uh, so we know that in any population, shorter women are more likely to have gestational diabetes. So that's going to compound the effects of obesity. So the women who have both obesity and gestational diabetes are even more likely to produce a large baby, and yet it may link together with a smaller pelvis. So can we see any data that would support these kinds of arguments? So um, what I was uh, able to do was to um, use two of the DHS surveys from India, which are particularly large. Um, a lot of my work is focused on India, so it was a, it's a natural uh, country to, to keep looking at. Um, there were these two surveys in 2005 to 2006 and 2015 to 16, so 10 years apart. And using these surveys, we could get some idea about secular trends in the rate of cesareans, secular trends in birth size, although that's a little more iffy, as you'll see, secular trends in maternal size and BMI. And bringing all of those together, we could ask how does maternal phenotype predict the risk of cesarean delivery and how are these risks changing over time? So, one of the things that um, we could do with these surveys was look at, at in detail at um, many of the risk factors and also their profile by age. So we wanted to take as many different things into account at the same time. So this is just age on the x-axis and height of the women in the two surveys on the y-axis. Very interesting, you can see that the tallest heights are actually occurring in women aged 30 to 34 years of age. Now if you thought about the UK, you'd probably think that women stop growing um, around uh, late teens. Um, there are reports from the 1980s showing that uh, adults do grow into the, uh, continue growing in linear height um, during the, their 20s, but this suggests that it, I don't think it's a sampling uh, artifact to think that the highest height is only a tiny bit higher, it's sort of 0.2 millimetres, but um, certainly there's a big change from the early 20s to the early 30s there. But taking into account that age pattern, what you can also see is that the more recent survey has women who are slightly taller than the survey that was 10 years earlier, but the magnitude of the change is tiny. That's 150.5, so that's 150.6. It's about 0.2 of a centimetre at best. So has there been a secular trend in women's height across these two surveys when we controlled for wealth and so on? Only in the older women is, is any kind of significant change apparent. So to all intents and purposes, women haven't really got taller across these two surveys in India. What about BMI? Same pattern, women reach their highest BMI typically in the later 30s, and now you can see a much bigger increase in the second survey relative to the first survey. So it's equivalent to over a kilogram per meter squared. So women haven't been getting taller across these two surveys, but they have been getting heavier. What about um, specific components of maternal phenotype? So what I've done is I've, I've looked at normal BMI, overweight, and obese women, and then I further stratified them by whether they're normal height or short. And you can see that the number of normal height, normal BMI women has gone down across the two surveys. There are now more overweight, normal height mothers. There are more obese, normal height mothers. There's almost the same, a tiny decline in the number of short, normal BMI mothers. 
there's an increase in short overweight mothers and an increase in short obese mothers. Now, these aren't huge changes in the percentages, but they are affecting large numbers of women, and, and the surveys are quite large as well. What about the offspring? Well, unfortunately, only a, a minority of the offspring in these surveys are weighed at birth, so what we get is this categorical description that is the baby very small, smaller than average, average larger than average, very large. But what you can see is that there's been a decline in the proportion of babies rated very small or smaller than average, an increase in babies rated average, and an increase in those rated larger or very large. So there does appear to have been some kind of secular trend uh, in the size of the baby at birth, bearing in mind it's not the strongest data. What about caesareans? So again, looking across maternal age, you can see that the caesareans are most common in the youngest mothers, 15 to 19 years of age. Um, but whichever age you look at, there's more caesareans in the more recent survey. So there's certainly been a secular increase in the percentage of births having uh, a caesarean just over 10 years. What about by birth order? Well, here you see that caesareans are most common in firstborns, and then they decline substantially with increasing birth order. And there's an increase in caesareans in the recent survey that's concentrated more in the first three birth orders than the later ones. What about by wealth? Well, there's a strong association between wealth category of the family uh, and the risk of a caesarean. And interestingly, more of the secular increase is occurring in wealth categories three and four. Well, it's already quite high in category five, but it looks like the rate of caesareans is catching up more over time in wealth quintiles three and four. And those wouldn't be considered especially wealthy women by Western standards. Um, the, the middle class in India is not huge, and therefore those are not we wouldn't really think of them as especially wealthy, would we? Uh, if we look at birth size, um, then the rate of caesareans has gone up across all birth sizes, maybe a tiny bit more amongst the large uh, or the largest uh, groups, but broadly, uh, it's the, the secular increase as apparent regardless of the size of the baby. Okay, so then we can look at some interactions. So here we've got birth order groups on the front, and we've got wealth groups up the side, and we're looking at the rate of caesareans. And uh, it's very nicely interactive. Whatever your wealth group, there's a much greater increase, uh, much greater risk of having a caesarean in birth order one compared to birth order six. Equally, whatever your birth order, the likelihood or, or the rate of uh, caesarean sections increases as you uh, become more wealthy. So wealthy women who are having a first-time baby over a third of them have a cesarean section. Whereas you look at poor women who are having a baby either uh, birth order six or, uh, six or higher, um, then it's, it's well under 2%. So there's a lot that we can learn just about looking at the birth order of the women and about their wealth status, which may not all relate to their somatic phenotype. We could be seeing issues around defensive medicine there as well. But what we can see is a massive patterning of uh, cesarean sections within this population. So we're going to have to control for all of that if we want to understand what's going on with maternal phenotype. So here are some models that attempt to control for all of this. And it's a big table, so I've, I'm giving it to you in chunks. This is the first chunk. What you can see here is that actually maternal age, the risk of cesareans increases as you get older. Um, it, it's not massively high, it's only two and a half times as high 
at 45 to 49 years as it is for the reference group of being 15 to 19 years. But there's a small increased risk of cesarean as women get older. These are births within the survey. So we're looking at the most recent birth within the five, for the five years, the second most recent birth, and the third most recent birth. Um, and you can see that there's a reduction with the third most uh, recent birth. So there's a, a little change within individual women if they gave birth to more than one baby during the, the DHS survey. So what we've got is births over a five-year period. Then we've got the wealth index, which is a, a much stronger effect. And you can see uh, that there's a dose response association. The wealthier the woman, the greater the risk of having a cesarean. We can also see um, that urban populations have higher risks relative to rural populations. And then you get the birth order effects, and they are massive. A 14 odds higher uh, ratio um, uh, for being a firstborn compared to six plus uh, birth orders. So very much cesarean sections are concentrated amongst firstborns and, and, and secondborns. And that has to be set against the age effects. So obviously it's younger women on average who have the first um, baby. So that helps uh, understand um, the two things going together, that the age effect is small, and this is uh, the main one. A small increased risk if the baby is male compared to female. So adjusting for all of those things, what's the story from maternal phenotype? And it's exactly as uh, we had expected. Um, basically, compared to a normal height, normal BMI mother, if the mother is normal height and overweight, or normal height and obese, then the risks go up. If the mother is normal BMI and short, the risk is, uh, this is unadjusted for covariates and this is adjusted for co covariates. Unadjusted for covariates, there's no association of just being short, but once you adjust for the covariates, then there is an increased risk. And then if the mother is both short and uh, uh, overweight or obese, then the risks uh, are higher. And then here you can see that uh, having a large or very large baby also increases the risk. So that's all quite complicated, so let's look at it on a graph. So this is the odds ratio for cesarean delivery. We've got normal BMI, overweight, and obese mothers who are normal height. And you can see the dose response increase. The heavier the mother, the more likely she is to need a cesarean delivery. Then if the mother is also short, then the risk is compounded. And because this is a very large study, it's something like 240,000 births in all, all of these groups are significantly different from all the others. So being short significantly increases the risk for an obese mother or for an overweight mother compared to being normal height. So that does provide support for the notion that short stature and overweight are both <coughs> risk factors for cesarean delivery, but they interact when you have both, uh, the odds of cesarean increases further. Now, if we go back to one of these 3D plots, here we've got the maternal phenotype across the front, and we've got the wealth group up the right-hand side, and this is just the rate of cesareans. And you can see that there's a, still a strong association there of wealth, but the pattern is the same uh, across all the maternal phenotype. In other words, you, you tend to get higher rates for the short obese women, but overall the rates are low in the poor groups compared to the wealthy groups. But if you convert these to odds ratios, so that means that the reference group here becomes a 1 in all cases, so you're going to flatten that, then the pattern is almost the same. So undoubtedly, differences in wealth account for a substantial part of the variability 
in the likelihood of having a cesarean delivery. But if you look within each wealth group, then maternal phenotype shows the same pattern. So if a poor woman is obese, it's pretty much the same odds ratio as if a wealthy woman is obese. So what we're seeing here isn't an artifact of wealth, it's going alongside wealth. Wealth does explain why people are obese, uh, and poverty explains why people are short. But if you look within people of the same wealth strata, then maternal phenotype tells a pretty consistent story about the risk of cesarean delivery. Finally, we could uh, look at the two surveys. Uh, so, so far that's been looking just at the more recent largest survey, but now we can bring the two surveys together. So there's 42,000 women in the first survey and 227, well, actually deliveries, 227,000 deliveries in the uh, second survey. If you don't adjust for maternal phenotype, then the odds ratio for being in the second survey is 1.49. So there's a 49% greater risk of having a cesarean just for being in the more recent study. That's the secular trend in cesareans. If you adjust for maternal phenotype, that goes down to 1.4. So now there's only a 40% chance. So some of the uh, greater prevalence or odds uh, of cesareans in the second survey is due to the secular changes in maternal phenotype. Now, Initially, I thought, well, 49%'s gone to 40%, so roughly one-fifth of the secular trend in cesareans is attributable to maternal phenotype. And my statistician colleague said, no, 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 it's much more complicated by that. You've got to go and use lots of equations and adjust for all sorts of things. So we did all of that, and in the end, we got exactly the same answer. So <laughs> roughly 18% of the secular trends in uh, in the increase in the odds of cesarean sections is explained by secular increases in maternal overweight that are not accompanied by secular increases in maternal height. So if you go back to the idea of the Lancet paper, then some of the increasing prevalence of uh, cesarean section in India is accounted for by the obesity epidemic taking place in the absence of increases in maternal height. But it's a minority, so it's, it's just one of various effects. Uh, so 18%. Uh, something that was also interesting was there was a question in the DHS survey, does the mother have diabetes or not? Now, I'm not sure it was a very good quality question. Not many people answered it, but you can put it in the model. And what you find is that in addition to everything else, if the mother has diabetes, the odds ratio of the cesarean delivery increases again by 1.73. So there's a 73% greater chance if you also have diabetes as well as having obesity. Again, we're learning more about the metabolism that drives uh, cesarean section. So one implication of this is that what we, what we should be doing to try and reduce unnecessary cesarean sections might link with what we should be doing to try and reduce diabetes in this population as well. So there are some shared opportunities in public health. So that was India. So the next question is, is India just a, an odd country? It, it is a country with short stature compared to other global regions, and it's got a diabetes epidemic, and people can be considered obese or overweight at um, BMI levels that wouldn't be considered uh, to mean the same thing in other populations. So we ran slightly simpler models for another 12 or so DHS surveys from countries around the world, and the results were pretty strikingly similar. So these are all compared to a reference group of normal BMI, normal stature women, this is if the mother is short. Most populations, the, the risk of cesarean goes up. 
This is if the mother is normal stature and overweight, uh, and that's normal stature and obese, and you see the dose-response effect. And then this one and the one on the right are if the mother is short and either overweight or obese. And so um, in all the countries, the rate is highest if the mother is both short and obese. So it does appear to be something about uh, women uh, from populations around the world, that these two risk factors of poor growth in early life and uh, excess weight uh, in later life are both impacting the complications of childbirth. So it does look like the dual burden of malnutrition has something to say uh, about childbirth. We're doing some more analyses at the moment in a data set from Lowland Nepal, which is called the Low Birth Weight Trial in South Asia, LBWSAT. This was a cluster randomized trial of women's groups uh, with or without cash transfer. The primary outcome of the uh, study was birth weight. Uh, and what's useful about this study is it's also quite big, it's about 21,000 women. Um, and they had a questionnaire at delivery and we were able to get uh, more information from these women than is available from the DHS uh, surveys. Another thing that's very interesting about this population is although the UN tells us that marriage before 18 years is illegal or should be illegal, the mean age of marriage in this population was 15 years and the typical first delivery was at 17 years. So we're dealing with women who are having children young. And that might be another interesting thing to look at in terms of the obstetric dilemma. Um, we have data both on cesarean delivery and on obstructed labor, but we also know, and one of the things we're trying to look at is that many of the, the clusters had no facilities for cesarean delivery. So a lot of the women probably didn't come back and give us their outcome data because uh, either the baby didn't live or even the mother didn't live. So uh, we have, it's not a perfect study, in other words. We see the same kind of associations for maternal somatic phenotypes. So there's an increased risk of um, the mother having a cesarean delivery if she's below 148 centimeters compared to taller. And then you can see that these uh, BMI groups um, compared to less than 18.5, 20 to 23, and 23 plus. Uh, and that's interesting because, I mean, this is not overweight. BMI 20 to 23, um, that's the lower end of the range in, in a population such as the UK. But in this population, that's already enough to actually affect the chances of uh, the cesarean. And again, we see the increased risk of males compared to females, and that's um, controlling for age. So if we can control for that, we can then look um, at the maternal age effects. And initially, things looked exactly as one would have expected. There's a classic paper by Mormon written in the 1980s when he looked at um, uh, pelvic dimensions of girls who had early or late puberty and suggested that um, girls who had early puberty didn't actually manage to finish growing the pelvis uh, as well, and therefore teenage mothers uh, could be a high-risk population for needing cesarean delivery. So that would make sense here. Compared to women delivering at 23, you see this dose-response increase in the odds of cesarean as you get younger. So, okay, that looks really interesting. Problem is, when you control for birth order, or when you run these analyses within a given birth order, there's absolutely no effect of age whatsoever. It doesn't look like it's an age effect after all. It looks more like it's a birth order effect. It's just there's a much greater risk of cesareans among first-born, first-time mothers compared to later-time mothers. And so the public health implications are, which are 
quite difficult to get your head around is that possibly in this population it's quite young mothers who are having their first baby and that's giving them an increased risk of cesareans. If we did what the UN said and delayed childbirth, we might not be getting rid of these cesareans, we might just be pushing forward through the or, uh, later into the life course, the time when the first baby arrives, and therefore the time when they might need a cesarean. So um, this might be more about where first-time babies are being concentrated through cultural patterns of marriage, rather than sort of missing out on some perfect biological opportunity to have a safer delivery at a later age. It's observational data, so we can't really tell. But our project is set up to try and understand why our why is marriage so early in this population? Um, wouldn't it be, you know, the UN says it would be later better. Uh, is it? Uh, so here's one example where we're not really seeing an obvious penalty in terms of cesareans for delaying marriage. Other than that, the burden of cesareans would fall on older women. But as I say, it's, it's observational data. We're missing some of the deaths, uh, most likely. So we have to be a bit cautious about interpreting these data. Um, one of the things that this comes back to is an understanding of what it is in societies that contributes to poor growth. So one of the things I mentioned earlier was um, highly infectious environments, bringing children, young children, into contact with pathogens, uh, which can reduce linear growth. But we know that both wasting and stunting are to some extent already present at birth. So it's not really uh, an external environmental effect only, it's also the consequence of being exposed to maternal metabolism during fetal life. These are data from 96 countries, so we're looking at a broad way here, it's just an ecological analysis. But this is the gender inequality index on the x-axis, and these are four key indicators of child health, <coughs> low birth weight, stunting, wasting, and mortality rate below five years. And in each case, the gender inequality index shows a, a very strong association with these outcomes. Women from societies with poorer levels of gender equality have higher rates of child mortality, poorer postnatal child malnutrition, and higher rates of low birth weight. Okay, there's lots of other things that vary between these populations, so we attempted to correct uh, control for things like GDP and so on. All the effects persisted, even when you adjusted the GDP, and for low birth rate, GDP didn't even feature in the model. It wasn't significant. It was gender inequality that predicted low birth rate. So what's quite interesting here is that if we try to improve our understanding of this cyclical turnover across generations of challenges in childbirth, poor growth in early life, and cultural patterns of early marriage, and so on, then gender inequality may be quite deeply embedded in these cycles of disadvantage. And that suggests that public health interventions targeting gender inequality could be able to reach several different components of this total pathway. It might reach growth in early life, the title, nutrition, it might reach marriage patterns, uh, it might reach childbirth, uh, care, and so on. And, and that's quite interesting from the context of these women's groups that are deliberately trying to increase women's uh, local agency to solve problems and uh, increase, increase perinatal health outcomes. So, going back to this, the original question, is it possible that the origins of agriculture might have worsened the magnitude of the obstetric dilemma by sending height going downwards whilst changing the maternal diet and possibly increasing the size of babies uh, being delivered, or at least keeping the same size baby? 
I think now, from the analysis of the Indian data, uh, you can see some of those things going on. So if the mother's stable in BMI but height is lower, then yes, you can see worse outcomes. And if the mother also gets heavier, uh, and that's a proxy for differences in uh, maternal glycemic control in pregnancy. So it looks a little bit more supported by evidence, um, but with some caveats. And so that could have increased the magnitude of the obstetric dilemma. But this is still just an interesting idea. I would say this is still the first look at this topic. Um, but I think what's interesting is that there is this potential connection between what might have happened in the past and what is happening now. And each of those topics can benefit from looking in the reverse direction. Finally, I just wanted to end with some cultural context. So um, there is this very uh, well-known uh, section of, of the Bible uh, in Genesis um, the fall of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, um, Eve's so-called sin, and God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Um, those who interpret the Bible uh, suggest that even before the fall of Adam and Eve, there would have been some pain in childbirth, but God says, I'm going to make it worse. Uh, it's just going to be worse than before. And... Uh, According to this person, uh, this academic, this judgment from God was meant to be one that every childbearing woman would experience. Well, this is just myths, you know, religious uh, myths and, and, and law and so on. But this is how uh, this particular academic has interpreted it. Pain in childbirth was placed on Eve and on every future mother. Turning this round, this is uh, a population seeking to make sense of something, and this is uh, um, one of the products. What did Adam get? Well, in the Garden of Eden, food was plentiful without laborious farming. But after his sin, Adam spent the rest of his life working to provide food for himself and his family. Growing the grains, which weren't so healthy for the obstetric dilemma. Now, of course, this is, you've got to be very careful when you look at this. But the point is that uh, this is just one religion. It's just one that I'm familiar with from my upbringing. Uh, and um, so we don't learn so much from this. But what is interesting is that it's almost as if at the time of an early uh, civilization, there was possibly some understanding that childbirth was becoming more problematic than before. It's only a hint you can overread into this kind of thing. But, but at the same time, why is this there as the original sin uh, in, in, in this particular uh, religion? So I'm only leaving that as an interesting uh, 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 issue to think about. Um, that uh, Once again, we can ask the question, when we look at childbirth, when we see what we have today, to what extent is that representative of uh, different historical periods in the past? So that, that's probably the, the way I'd like to leave the talk, that I don't think there is one obstetric dilemma for humans. I think there's a variable obstetric dilemma, and we could learn more about both the past and the present by asking questions about why it might be uh, different between individual women. So thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, please.